so we are in Isaiah, and last week I believe we finished 43. So what we've had up until now, starting in 40, this series explaining to Israel why they are going to be in exile. Remember, Judah is not in exile yet. Judah is still in the land at this point. Israel has been scattered. So as Isaiah is writing this to both Israel and Judah, half of them are in the land and half of them are not. And you remember, we talked last time briefly, it is my personal opinion that the reason Judah did not go into exile at the same time as Israel went into exile is because for messianic purposes, God needed Judah to remain as a coherent nation. So Israel, when they get taken out by the Assyrians, they get scattered and they get absorbed into the world. In fact, Jews are very busy throughout the world looking for remnants of the ten tribes. They found them as far away as Thailand, certainly found them down in Ethiopia. And there's an active effort by Israel, Judah, to locate their brothers that got scattered during the Assyrian conquest. But anyway, Judah, of course, does not get scattered. And it's my opinion that God needs Judah to remain as a coherent unit for messianic purposes, because the prophecies all say that the Messiah is going to be a son of David, which, of course, is of Judah. And you remember the whole first chunk of Isaiah was laying out the case against Judah. And then we laid out the case against Israel, and then Israel gets sanded off by the Assyrians, but Judah does not. And so you say, wow, I mean, after all of the stuff that happened, how come? So the idea there is that they remain a unit, so when the Messiah is born, he is born into a Jewish nation, Judah, who is in the land. So they go into exile to Babylon, spend 70 years in Babylon, come back to the land. We have the birth of the Messiah, and then they turn right around and go back into exile. And interestingly, Judah continues to remain a nation. In other words, the Jews have never lost their identity as has Ephraim or Joseph. Joseph seems to have lost his identity. My personal opinion on that is there's going to be another messianic event, and Judah is needed for that, just like Judah was needed for the first one. So starting in 40, this is after we're done with the northern kingdom. They have been sanded off by Assyria. Most of the rest of this stuff is talking to Judah in the future by saying, you guys are going into exile, and you're going to be in exile and so forth, but don't worry about it because I'm going to keep track of you and I'm going to bring you back. I mean, that's sort of the essence of it. And interwoven in there, you have the mocking of people who worship idols. And there'll be more of that tonight. I'm going to thoroughly mock anybody who would consider an idol. And of course, as we know, the reason that both Israel and Judah went into exile is because of idol worship. Let me just do one more thing before I launch into this. We've said over and over again, and lose track of how many times I've said it even here during Isaiah, those who worship idols become like them. And you remember we were in the Psalms and they have hands but do not handle, they have eyes but don't see, ears but don't hear, lips but don't talk, etc. And those who worship them become like them. That is to say, 
spiritually bereft of their five senses. If you worship an idol, you become spiritually deaf, dumb, and blind. And the thing about idols is people make idols in their own image. They think they are making a god, but what they're really doing is they are taking their lusts, their desires, their predilections, and they are embodying them in a god, small g, and have an idol set up to worship it. But the whole deal with idol worship is the idol matches the people who worship it. Different countries have different idols with different mythologies. That's because different people have different predilections. So in the Bible, it says those who worship the idols become like them. That's true. I mean, scripture. I'm not arguing with it. But I'm also saying that the people who worship idols are primed with certain desires that are contrary to the law of God. And so what they do is they invent a God that will give them a better deal. If you study any ancient religions, you'll find that all of them are heavily involved in sex. Sex with all varieties of humans, all flavors of humans, all 36 genders of humans as we have nowadays. They're all represented in various pagan temples. The other thing that happens over and over again is human sacrifice. That happens all over the world. And all of those things are things that are buried deeply within people that come out in idol worship. And what God is doing with his Torah is saying, no, that ultimately leads to death. My Torah is what leads to life, and I'm the one that leads to life. But the problem is God doesn't let you do a lot of the fun stuff. So what people do is they drift away from God because they want some of the fun stuff. Look at the American church today. You got a church on Lookout Road with rainbow flag in front of it. Methodist Church drove by another place. I don't remember where, but I've, I've been driving around a lot the last few days. Passed a mainline denomination, big church with rainbows all over it. And the whole point is that's forbidden by God. So what people do is they invent a God or a religion in their own image that lets them do that stuff. It's as old as humanity, and Israel falls right into it and winds up going into exile. And if you read in, I think it's Leviticus, probably Leviticus. Leviticus is a good place to blame. It specifically speaks against bestiality. The Bible wouldn't say it if people didn't want to do it. The Bible just doesn't go randomly around forbidding stuff. Don't do this, don't do that, and, and God making stuff up to forbid. He forbids stuff that people have a tendency to do. And that shows up certainly in the book of Jude. We talked about that, what, last time? Jude, verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Yeshua who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. So the problem that the angels have who are being kept in eternal change is unauthorized use of the reproductive organs. 
because he's linking them to Sodom and Gomorrah and saying that Sodom and Gomorrah's problem was sexual immorality. So the point I'm making is sex is obviously an extremely powerful drive. And if you get a church that opens up human sexuality to whatever you want, that church is going to draw a crowd. That's, I think, why many of the mainline churches, by the way, are now sporting rainbow flags, because it draws a crowd with all the money and political power and everything else that goes with it. Anyway, all of this is by way of talking about idols. And in biblical times, the way you got your rainbow flag hoisted was to set up your own temple and invent yourself a god, make an idol, and start worshiping just like we do today. That was more of that than I wanted to talk about, but there we are. So now, the point I'm making here is Israel is in exile, Judah is about to go in exile, but Judah is being spoken of in the future when it will be in exile. So chapter 44 in Isaiah. But now, hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel whom I have chosen. So Jacob, Israel, which is saying we're talking to the entire nation, not just Judah, and not just Israel. So Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will keep you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Yeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams, this one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. So this is obviously talking about return from exile. The thing you want to key on here is this use of Jeshurun for Israel. The other place that that shows up is in Deuteronomy. If you go to Deuteronomy 32, which is the song of Moses, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, you have in the first 14 verses, Moses tells of all the good that God had done to Israel. But now down to verse 15. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook the God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. Hence, my lead-in riff on idolatry. But two things. One is the use of the word Jeshurun, which is echoed here in Isaiah 44, which I believe is intended to draw you back to the Song of Moses, because that's the other place that title of Israel is used. Scoffed at the rock of his salvation and stirred him to jealousy and so forth. I want to go down to verse 23. And I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them, and they shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave, and indoors terror for a young man and woman alike, the nursing child and the man of great hair. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory. Had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is triumphant, it was not the Lord who did all this. 
So what God is saying is Israel is thoroughly deserving of total destruction. And he would have done so. He would have destroyed them. Now this is Moses speaking, by the way. And of course, we go back to when Moses was standing on the top of the mountain as Israel was busy sinning down at the foot of the mountain. And God says, get out of my way. I'm going to destroy them all, and I'm going to start over with you. And Moses says no, and doesn't get out of the way, and in fact stands up to God and says, among other things, if you do this, the nations will say that God was not able to do what he promised. So the reason that God relented from the destruction of Israel at the golden calf is exactly the same as the reason he will relent from their destruction here during their exile, and that is so that the enemy, the Gentiles, will not come to the conclusion that they were the ones who destroyed Israel, and hence they were the ones who prevailed over God. It's two things. God professes his eternal love for Israel. So one of the reasons he's not going to destroy them is because he loves them. But the other reason that he is not going to destroy them is because of his reputation and his name. Now, many of you have been parents. And I am sure that every one of you, at least on one occasion or another, has looked at his child and contemplated homicide. It's a very fleeting thing, and you quickly come back under control, but there's this moment when the little so-and-so has done something that has just so vexed you that you are ready to lash out with far more force than the situation truly is warranted. What that says is you have the power to destroy, but you do not have the power to compel obedience. In other words, you as a full-grown adult have the physical ability to punish this child unto death. But what you don't have the ability to do is override that child's free will and cause him to obey of his own free will. So when God is dealing with Israel on the mountain or here or any place else, God has the power to destroy Israel anytime he wants. What God does not have the power to do is override their free will. And so if God then gives in to his anger, as he threatens to do on several occasions during in the wilderness, and wipes them out, what's going to be said is, oh, well, yeah, I mean, this is a powerful God, just like any other powerful God. But what he can't do is he can't tell the future, because he says he's going to deliver them. And furthermore, he can't compel them to obey him because he has promised that he will not destroy them. So if he does, what that means is he is simply a god like any other god, very powerful, but not able to tell the end from the beginning because his word will not have come to pass. Free will is very powerful, but it's also apparently, to God, very precious. Because once the creature uses his free will in worship and relationship to God, that apparently is worth as much to God as the whole universe. So what Moses is saying here in Deuteronomy is the reason that God is not going to destroy Israel utterly, 
but will eventually bring them back is one, he loves them, and two, he doesn't want the nations to get the wrong idea that he is simply another wrathful pagan god like any of their pagan gods. Yes, very powerful, but not able to do what he says he's going to do. And by the way, in Deuteronomy 32, Jeshurun is used negatively. Jeshurun grew fat, grew sleek, grew complacent. It's used, you will, in a negative context. Here in Isaiah, it says, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. So here it's a term of endearment, if you will, and a term of comfort, whereas before it was sort of negative. In either case, it's just an alternative name for Israel. Verse 6 in Isaiah 44. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. Remember back in Deuteronomy 32, we had Jeshurun who had scoffed at the rock of his salvation. You see how this Isaiah passage is pointing back to the song of Moses. And what he is saying is two things here in this passage, 6 through 8. First thing he's saying is he is able to declare the end from the beginning. So he knows the end from the beginning. And of course, his word is all over scripture where he is prophesying things. And he's saying those things are true. And oh, by the way, go ahead and chuck up your pagan gods and have them do the same. Let's hear what they got to say. And of course, they have nothing to say. And the other thing he's saying is verse 8, fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it that you are my witnesses? So what he's saying to them is one of the reasons that you guys continue to exist is because you are my witnesses. Your continued existence is a witness to the truth of my word. That's a reason he needs a coherent Judah. By coherent, I don't mean mentally coherent. I mean as a block, as an identifiable people. The northern tribes are scattered and gone. Nobody knows where they are. But Judah has been maintained as a coherent people for the entire time of their existence because they are necessary to serve as a witness to the word of God. And you've all heard the Mark Twain quote that anybody who doubts the Bible just needs to look at the Jews. They continue to exist in spite of everything. And now they're back in their land with their own language. And so you have this ancient language which has been raised up and is now a commonly spoken language in the nation of Israel. You have a people that are starting to be brought back just as God proclaims that they would be. And so what he is saying here in Isaiah is don't be afraid because I need you as witnesses to the rest of the world that I am who I say I am, that I can tell the end from the beginning, and that my word is true. All right, so now we're going to go into some snark. 
verses 9 through 20 are pure snark. What he's doing here, and he's been doing this on and off all the way back to chapter 40, where he talks about the foolishness of people who worship idols. Well, now he's going to go into a long riff about the foolishness of people who worship idols. Just understand when you're reading this, this is pure snarkiness on the part of the prophet or on the part of God, either one. Take your pick. So nine, all who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? That's a rhetorical question. He said that idols are completely worthless, so who are these idiots that are spending lots of welding rod or whatever it is that they have making these idols which are completely worthless? So who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. And they shall be terrified and put to shame when the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob reveals himself. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. By the way, this carpenter stretching out a line, what that is, is a chalk line? That's what we're talking about when it says stretches out a line over something. We're talking about a chalk line. Verse 14, he cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree, or an oak, and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. You get the idea. He cut this wood down, and he's doing all sorts of useful stuff with it. Oh, by the way, I'll take part of it and make a god. In other words, there's nothing different between the part that he burned to bake his bread and the part that he has carved into something to worship. It's the same wood. It has the same power. It has the same authority. It's a waste of time. You might just as well use it all for a fire. You've just wasted part of it. 16. Half of it he burns in the fire, over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. As he writes all this, everybody is supposed to see just how stupid this is. 18. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat, and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? And the idea here is he has shut their eyes so they cannot see and their hearts so they cannot discern.
And Psalm 115 goes through it in far more detail. Can't see, can't hear, can't touch, can't taste, can't, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it categorizes all the things. Here it just says their eyes are shut so they can't see and their heart is shut so they can't understand. But it's the same sentiment. Verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. So all of this talking about idols and stuff like that is by way of saying the reason you guys are in exile and the reason you are among the nations is because you became just like everybody else worshiping dumb blocks of wood. But he will redeem them and he will blot out their transgressions. But notice the next part, 22. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud, your sin like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Notice he is asking them to return. He is not sticking out his hand and grabbing them by the stacking swivel and sucking them across the desert back to Israel. And one of the things we know happened during the Babylonian captivity is the majority of the Jews who were captives in Babylon did not come back even though they could have. So the idea here is he has blotted out their transgressions, which is to say he's not holding it against them, but it is still necessary for them to turn and return to him. 23. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains. O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. And again, this is the whole nation. This is not just Judah. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. And of course, all of that is true. One of the things that always amuses me, would not have amused me 30 years ago before I became a believer, is the clever people who think that the worship of God is foolish. And they're very smart, they're very clever, but they have decided that they are not going to worship God. And the ways that they tie themselves into logical pretzels to avoid worshiping God are really kind of amusing. I tend to be a young earth creationist. My dear number one son tends to be an old earth creationist. But we're both creationists. We both believe God did it. And it becomes very clear that all of the stuff that people who don't believe in creation and don't believe in intelligent design wrap themselves around to avoid it. And the stuff they believe is just flat absurd. And the only reason it has any legs is because a whole bunch of them get together and say the same thing. And they have infested universities and infested conferences and so forth. And they have sneered and snickered at people who say, wait a minute, it's obvious that there's an intelligent design here but they really have no coherent, cogent arguments. 
their arguments don't stand up. The only thing that does stand up is the herd. And they will throw you out of the university if you question the wisdom of it, so they intimidate people. As I say, very clever people, but fundamentally stupid. Darwin made atheism intellectually respectable. What Darwin started off doing is noticing evolution small e, which is to say you can take a wolf and in 20 generations you can come up with a chihuahua, although why you would want to do that, I don't know. <laughs> but it can be done, and everybody understands that, right? So what they did is they took that and they extrapolated that to the origin of everything. There's a fundamental difference between extrapolation and interpolation. Interpolation means that you know something here and you know something here, and between those two you can make a reasonable guess as what goes on, because you know this endpoint and you know that endpoint. Interpolation is a very powerful tool. Extrapolation is where you know this point and this point, and then you say, over here must be what's happening because it looks like the curve is going that way. Extrapolation is very dangerous. It's useful and it's used, but it should be used with great caution because it's dangerous. Interpolation is much safer. And what they've done with evolution is they have two points, you know, the wolf and the chihuahua, and they said, okay, here's a process to get from one to the other. Therefore, we will extrapolate backwards to where we have no data and assume back here that that's what applies. Extrapolation, especially over long distances, is not valid, but that's what they've done. In verse 24, this said the Lord your Redeemer who formed you from the womb. He's not necessarily talking about biology here. What he is using is an analogy, which is to say that I took the nation Israel and I gave birth to it, if you will, in much the same way that a human baby is given birth to. Back at 25, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. That's what we've just been talking about. We've been talking about people who worship idols, people who worship their own intellect. And he has made them all foolish. 26, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, which is to say, his servant and his messenger, the prophets and the Messiah and so forth, they are speaking the truth. And God will confirm the truth of their words. So who confirms the word of his servants and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up their ruins. That has happened. It happened first off in the time of Cyrus and Nehemiah and Ezra and then it was destroyed by the Romans, and it's been raised up again. Not sure which term we're talking about here. Verse 27, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundations shall be laid. And of course, Cyrus is at this point yet over 200 years in the future. Cyrus is not even a gleam in his daddy's eye because his daddy isn't even born. Cyrus the Great, Cyrus II, founded the Persian Empire, the one that goes after Greece and, and so forth. And it says in Second Chronicles, and it says in Ezra, that the Lord moved upon Cyrus and moved his heart to reestablish 
Jerusalem and have it be built. Let's go to Ezra. Ezra 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, and so forth. Jeremiah does not mention Cyrus. What Jeremiah does is prophesy the length of the Babylonian captivity, which is 70 years. So Cyrus, when he starts sending people back and says, go back and rebuild your city and so forth, is in response to the prophecy of Jeremiah, which says that the term of exile is 70 years, not in response to the prophecy of Isaiah, which mentions Cyrus by name. And one of the things I have heard taught, and I cannot find it anywhere, but I will go ahead and tell you anyway because it might be true. Do with this as you like, but I have no source for it other than I've heard teachers say it. And what they have said is that the Jews went into Cyrus and showed him the book and showed him his name, which had been written down a couple of hundred years before he was born, and that was the thing that convinced him that this God was real and his people needed to go home. I can find no written authority for that, but I have heard it taught. The prophecy here in Isaiah 44 and 45 is, in fact, the thing that happens in Ezra 1 and at the end of Second Chronicles. And he goes to the temple and trots out all the stuff that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem when he destroyed the place, something like 5,200 golden vessels and stuff, and he loads it all on the Jews and say, go back and rebuild the temple. And as I say, the teaching I have heard several times is that the thing that made that happen was the Jews going to him and showing him the book where he is mentioned in a 200-year-old scroll. It may be in the Mishnah. It may be in the Jewish writings. Daniel was his chief of staff. It could be entirely possible, and it may be extra-biblical. In other words, a Jewish writing somewhere. I, I just don't know the answer, but I've heard it taught before. I am not teaching it because I cannot verify it. But you may hear it, and if you hear it and can find somebody who can verify it, please try it over and tell me. I would love to know. Et ta shama.